Let's open our Bibles this morning again to Ezra chapter 9. We'll be looking again in verses 10 through 15. Ezra chapter 9, verses 10 through 15. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, You are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before You in our guilt, for none can stand before You because of this. Let's pray. Our Father, open our hearts to Your Word this morning. Let us hear the message that the Spirit has for Your church today. Let us hear the message that your Spirit has for each one of us today. And God, let us be doers of the Word and not hearers only. We ask these things through the mighty name of Jesus Christ, who gave Himself up on the cross for our sake. Amen. We continue this week to look at this prayer of Ezra and we'll move on as planned from the first part of a sentence that began in verse 13 to the conclusion of that question in verse 14. Specifically, I'd like you to consider this morning the first half of the verse 14. He says, Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations I don't know if there's a more practical question for God's people than this. Shall we break your commandments again? It is the question that we all struggle with in our lives. We know we're all still quite sinful. Those of us who would be honest even with ourselves would admit that in addition to the countless sins that we commit in ignorance, there are still sins to which we make willful advances, choosing to sin, knowing all the time we are stepping into it. Have you spoken unkindly about someone else? Have you gossiped? Or is every word that has come from your mouth one that would build the other up? I would ask you, has your temper flared, even when you felt like you were the one wronged? That's a tough one for many because it's so difficult because it's so difficult to be hurt by the words or actions of another and not lash out. But the scripture is clear that if we hold a grudge, it's sinful even 
if we are the one wronged. But the Scripture is clear when it says in Matthew 18, verses 21 and 22, Peter came to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. There's exactly nothing in that verse about the offender coming to apologize or to seek forgiveness. The forgiveness comes from our hearts. It's automatic. But that's certainly not how the world works. We clamor for justice. We guard our rights. The way of Christ, though, is to, as Philippians 2.3 says, with humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves. But if I go on with this example, I run the risk of digressing from our text and just preaching the example. So let's move on to our main point. As we look at, shall we break your commandments again? The problem for the people around Ezra is that they could no longer even claim to have committed their sin accidentally. They could no longer make the claim that they were ignorant of the law. They had no technicality that could get them off of their guilt. Now they knew the law. And now they knew that they were guilty. They knew God's mercy in the past. And they were rightly ashamed before Him. They were in the same situation as many, if not all of us in this. They knew what the right thing to do was. And they did something else. The right thing for them was to reject the idolaters of the world and to reject their idolatry until such a time as those very idolaters came to God exclusively in humility and in worship. But they, like, the, like we do often, chose to sin or at least to continue sinning long after they had been made aware of their sin. And so these sinful Jews could only plead guilty to their sin. There's no other possible plea. The evidence was unarguable. There were wives and there were husbands who had set up altars to these false gods in the household of the faithful. There were children who were being raised to pray to clumps of metal, stone, and wood. There were enemies of God in the land who had been given great comfort because of the unfaithfulness of God's people. And so these people like Ezra can only confess their sin. Even as they looked around and thought of all the people who had conspired in this grave sin with them, perhaps the word of Isaiah came to their minds when he said in chapter 56, verse six, or 53, verse 6, All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. There it is. There's the gospel. 
the good news in all of this. Even though we all had wandered, even though we had all chosen our own way, God has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. And when He says Him, He means the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah was looking forward to that day. He knew the Messiah was coming and that God was going to place our sin on Him to deal with it forever. God caused all our iniquity, our intentional sin to fall on Jesus Christ. That's everything. Though we wander in ignorance, God has laid that sin upon Jesus Christ. Though we sin in our will, God has laid that sin upon Jesus Christ. And so the question that Ezra asks in our text today changes everything in the way we relate to the law of God. It echoes through the rest of Scripture and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Shall we break your commandments? Again, let's understand together this morning why this is so important. And so I ask you to look back at the preceding verse where we began last week in the beginning of this sentence, and we'll take the whole sentence as a whole. It says, And after that, after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations. It sounds a whole lot like Romans 6, 1 and 2. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? If God is going to go easy on us and not punish us for every sin, why would we not continue to sin? But Paul's answer in that great epistle is how can we who have died to sin live any longer in it? Notice what Ezra here is appealing to. It's exactly the same thing to form the reason that the people would obey. Put simply, why should the people care or obey? He doesn't sit here and say, because God is great. He doesn't appeal to God's majesty and say, that is why you should not be doing these sins. He didn't appeal to God's majesty alone. He didn't appeal to God's holiness or righteousness or justice alone. Certainly they're found even more by implication throughout this prayer. But as to the reason they should obey, he points to God's kindness. You have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. Shall we break your commandments again? He hasn't simply restated the law. Do not sin in this way or you'll be driven out again. He doesn't simply call them out and place before them again the words of the law. He reminded them of the law, yes, in verses 11 and 12, but he didn't leave it there. He didn't reinforce the penalties for disobedience. And I would argue and plan to in the coming weeks that even when he continues the prayer through verses 14 and 15 and talks about what God would be right to do, 
And he is contemplating the real threat of the judgment of God here on earth. He is not simply telling them, obey or die. Because there is a better reason for obedience. The reason he does not simply appeal to the law here and say, just do it. Like the great campaign of the 1980s, just say no. Just say no to idolatry. We think it's that simple. But the problem is, the law is weak. Romans 8 Verses 3 and 4 say, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What Ezra is calling the Jews to here is obedience for a different reason than simply escaping punishment. Allow me to illustrate this point. Have any of you ever asked a question like this? At what point does an activity become sinful? Have you ever pondered that question? When we ask this, we're trying to figure out how close we can get to sin without stepping over the line. We want to get our toes right up to the edge. And we want to know where is that boundary line between what is allowable and what is sinful. We try to understand that moment where if we proceed one more step, we're sinning. Some ask it of intoxicants. Others ask it of diversions or entertainments. Others ask it when they're trying to put away a troublesome sin by simply reducing how much it shows. I recall back when I was in high school, the young men in our church youth group decided that looking at a pretty girl was okay, but if you looked a second time, it was sinful. We decided we could put a fence up right there. And we held a whole lot of discussions about how far was too far. And many, if not all of these solutions we found look similar. This far and no further. And that's how we deal with the law in our lives so many times. We set up guardrails around it. Like a warning track in baseball, we know when we reach this point, we're in danger of going too far. And the problem with the warning track is the same as with the original law that we're trying to protect. We just keep going anyway. It doesn't stop us anymore. Guardrails and warning tracks have been useless from the very beginning of time. If you recall back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, we read the only law that God gave Adam in the garden. The only one. And it was given immediately before the record of the creation of Eve. God tells Adam, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it, 
you will surely die. But then, just one chapter later, we see Eve quoting the law that Adam had given her. That Adam had told her, now this is the tree, but look how she had been told that that same law. From the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, not God said to me, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. It makes perfect sense. If we never touch it, we can never eat it. See, Adam had set up a guardrail for her. Don't even, don't even touch it. But then when she had touched it and nothing happened, well, might as well go all the way now. The guardrail, though, didn't keep them in the huge garden that God had planted for them. That guardrail did not keep them from strolling by that forbidden tree. It didn't rein in their curiosity as to what God was keeping from them. In short, it didn't do anything to remove the temptation that was coming. Because asking, when does this become sinful, is appealing to the law, and the law is weak through our flesh. It is quite equivalent And if you've got children, you've probably heard this. If you have been a child, you've probably asked this. What will happen to me if I disobey? Has anybody ever done that calculation in your head? Well, mom and dad said this, but what's going to happen if I disobey? See, that's what we want to do with the law. We calculate the benefit versus the cost. We calculate how will this really affect me. And even in the knowledge that she would die didn't keep Eve from touching the forbidden fruit or eating it. And none of that stopped Adam who was with her from eating it himself. Consequences don't change us. Ask any addict out there. The law defines boundaries and the law defines consequences. And so many Christians stay in that state of adherence to the law for the law's sake. We try to be good because we're supposed to be good. After all, God is holy and He commands us to be so. And so we live our lives pandering to a law that is too weak to give us the ability to follow. And now you may be well wondering, how else can we approach God? How else can we live this life? So glad you asked this morning. Because for the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ, there is a completely different question. And it's anticipated in our passage in Ezra today. 
Instead of asking, how close can I get to sin without crossing the line? Instead of asking, where does the line for sin start? Just like the Pharisees did. The question a Christian asks, what will please God the most? What will please God the most? Consider for a moment how different this is than most of us have been taught to think. The difference between these two questions is the difference between law and love. The difference between religion and relationship. The difference between a person who's ceremonial and a person who is sold out. It is the difference between fear and fellowship. And it is infinitely superior in its effect. Take the case of a man and a wife who are married to each other. The first question, how close can I get to sin? Is like the woman asking, how close can I get to another man without actually committing adultery? How many of you want your spouse asking that question? But the second question is like asking, what honors my beloved husband the most in my other relationships? What honors my wife the most in our relationship? Which one has a greater depth of love? Which one has a greater depth of commitment? that I'm going to do everything I can up to the point where adultery becomes sinful or I'm going to do what I can to honor my spouse. Our relationship with God is exactly the same there. Shall we look and say, I'm going to do everything I can that keeps God from wiping me out or I'm going to do everything I can to honor Him, to glorify Him. The baseline question for our Christian conduct is not how far can I go and not sin. It is what will please my beloved. That is God. What will please Him the most? Because the first question is law. The second question is love. That is an example of what Paul meant in the passage in Romans 8 we read earlier. That the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, might be completed in us, that might be full grown in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It is our relationship of love to God through Jesus Christ that provides us with the fulfillment of the law. You can also find exactly the same thing in Galatians 5.16. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Paul isn't telling the Galatians. In fact, he's telling the Galatians, don't turn back to the law. Don't go back into the into the obedience of the law for the law's sake. He says, walk by the Spirit and you won't even have to worry about that because you won't gratify the desire 
of the flesh. 1 John 4, 16-19 says, We've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in His love abides in God and God abides in Him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as He is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. Are you worried that God is looking down at you and is judging every single minute of your life? Are you living in a loving relationship with the Father? Because perfect love casts out fear. Now, none of this does away with the law itself, by no means. Through the law and through the rest of Scripture, we know what pleases our beloved. We know it's not pleasing to go out and murder. We know it's not pleasing to tell a lie. We know it's not pleasing to covet what other people have. Romans 7, 7 says, What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Our relationship with the law informs our love of God as to what pleases Him. Because we know that in Romans 8, 1-2 it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death. Or you may look at what Jesus says when He's asked, What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And He says, in this and in the other, love your neighbor as yourself. Every bit of the law is found. Every bit of it. Christian, there is great comfort here. And I pray you'll not leave this time without grasping hold of the comfort that God is giving you. Too many Christians see God as one who is waiting to punish every misstep and every fall. But what if instead you live your life asking, how can I show my love for God? How can I show my love for God? How can I love Him best through my life? And know that God loves you. That He gave His only begotten Son to die to give you life, to give you access to Him. And even when He chastens or corrects, He always does it perfectly with a loving and a measured hand. Beloved Christian, God is the ultimate realist. He doesn't look at you, if you're one of His, and wish you were any different than who you are. Does that mean He's satisfied with where you are? No. It means He is going to sanctify you. He's going to bring you more into His likeness. But He doesn't wish 
at all. He knows who you are. And He will be tenderly and lovingly and relentlessly bringing you into His image. Your sin doesn't surprise Him. He has paid for it already. He knew every sin you would commit before Jesus Christ ever went to the cross. And it has all been taken care of. The relationship you have with Him now is without a barrier, without a separation, without offense. We don't have to worry about how far we can go because we're not trying to see how close we can get to sin. We're trying to see how close we can get to God. What will please Him? How can we love Him? He is more tender to you than a shepherd holding a frightened lamb. He is more tender to you than a father holding a baby's hand as she takes her first step. And just like that child, you will fall at times. You'll fail at times. And your heavenly Father will always be there to lift you back up and help you begin again. Let the compass of your heart always point to the love of God that you have and let your love for Him guide your actions. Let's pray. Our Father, Forgive us when we've looked at your word and we have looked simply at a way that we can avoid punishment or perhaps even weigh what are the consequences versus the benefits of sin. Forgive us when we have looked at the pleasure of the moment or the calling of our flesh. And said, is it really that bad? God, change the question that we ask. How are we glorifying you? How do we love you? Change the direction of our life from simply avoiding sin. To the all-encompassing, I shall love the Lord with all my heart and with everything that I have. God, let your Spirit change that question. Let your Spirit draw us closer to you. We ask these things in the name of of the one who accomplished your love to us. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.